All right, so on to our next podcast. So now we're in the 1920s politics, and we're moving toward the Great Depression. So with the election of 1920, the Republicans are going to nominate Warren Harding of Ohio, and Calvin Coolidge, which we talked about in our last podcast, is going to be nominated as his vice presidential running mate. Their platform was effectively ambiguous regarding whether or not to join the League of Nations. Harding spoke of returning America to normalcy. Uh, Americans seemed less interested in international issues, and many Americans were tired of the idealism, the sacrifice, and the overreaching reforms of the old progressive era. The conservative old guard wing of the Republican Party now dominated as Roosevelt's progressive followers had bolted the party in 1912 and lost a lot of their influence in the Republican Party once they returned back in 1916. The Democrats are going to nominate James Cox of Ohio, who supported America joining the League of Nations. His running mate was Assistant Navy Secretary Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Harding is going to defeat Cox 404 to 127, not exactly close, in the Electoral College. Women are going to vote for the first time in the national election. Eugene Debs is going to receive about 6% of the vote for the Socialist Party while sitting in jail. Harding, once he is placed in office, well, several months after he's placed in office, will actually pardon Debs. Uh, the isolationists are going to turn the Republican victory into a mandate to block U.S. entry into the League of Nations. Now, let's talk about some of the more significant members of Harding's cabinet. So, you have Charles Hughes. This is going to be the Secretary of State, and he will lead several important international peace conferences. Andrew Mellon will be the Secretary of the Treasury, and he's going to lower the national debt and the taxes for the wealthy. He's also a Pittsburgh aluminum king, a major financier, and perhaps the richest man in the U.S. at that time. Herbert Hoover will be the Secretary of Commerce. He's the only major progressive cabinet member, and he will seek several reforms. He's also going to promote an increased cooperation between government and business. And he's going to make headlines in 1927 for his humanitarian role in dealing with the Great Mississippi Flood. He's he's going to have some broken promises to African Americans in the region, however, and this is going to cost him politically in the 1932 election. The Republican old guard is going to dominate Harding's administration, and his administration is going to resemble the McKinley-style old order of the Gilded Age. Harding will die in San Francisco in August of 1923 while on a speech tour. There's going to be major scandals like the Teapot Dome that they had not reached the public in full force by this time. There's also going to be stress from the scandals that uh, are believed to have promoted his death. His vice president, Calvin Coolidge, will assume the presidency. His conservative economic agenda will be carried out by Coolidge and Hoover. Conservatives are going to believe that the role of government was to make business more profitable. Tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy are going to be the trickle-down economics. Secretary of Treasury Andrew Mellon is going to favor rapid expansion of capitalist investment. And the premise of this is high taxes are going to force investors to invest in tax-exempt securities rather than in factories that provided economic growth. So in practice, it resulted in smaller net return to the Treasury than what was the moderate taxes before. Tax cuts for the wealthy, he believed, would result in investment in businesses which would expand the economy and create more jobs for ordinary workers. In theory, yes. In practice, no. Uh, For the most part, 
if they got tax cuts, they kept it and pocketed it instead of re, um, reinvesting it into their businesses. Mellon is going to engineer a series of tax cuts from 1921 to 1926, and a lot of this tax burden is going to shift to the middle class, which is not going to help it. It's going to actually start eroding the middle class because of this. <clears throat> oh, okay. We're also going to see higher tariffs. The Fordney McCumber tariff in 1922. Businessmen are going to fear cheap goods coming in from Europe. The tariff rates are going to be raised from 27% under the Underwood tariff to about 38.5%. This is going to be almost as high as the Payne Allerch tariff of 1909. Duties on foreign farm produce are going to increase. And this is going to hurt, hurt Europe's post-World War I econ, uh, economic recovery, and it's going to reduce Europe's ability to repay the loans to the U.S. because they're not sending, you know, they're not exporting goods to us. They're not getting that uh, revenue that they thought they'd get. Conservatives are, going to, conservatives, sorry, are going to believe the government's role should be limited, and they're going to want to stay out of the way of business, so it's that free market or laissez-faire. Less government regulation occurred than in the Progressive Era, and few regulatory laws were passed. Harding appointed people to regulate agencies that didn't like progressive regulation. The Interstate Commerce Commission was dominated by men personally sympathetic to the managers of the railroads. Government is going to help facilitate monopolies and the consolidation of industries. The antitrust laws were often ignored, circumvented, or inadequately enforced by Attorney General Harry Dougherty. He later resigned after being investigated by the U.S. Senate for the illegal sale of pardons, pardons, and liquor permits. So he's just selling pardons. That's always great. Uh, industrial setup trade associations where an industry would agree upon standardization of a product. Uh, there's going to be publicity campaigns, and then there's supposed to be a united front in dealing with other industries and customers. Now, despite violating these antitrust legislations, the Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, is going to encourage their formation. The trade associations are going to try to eliminate the cutthroat competition. Businessmen will run the government as... They were seen to have experience in management. Cabinet positions went to wealthy business leaders who looked out for big business interests. Federal government programs to help ordinary citizens or local economies were rejected. To the Mississippi flood victims' appeal, the government is not an insurer of its citizens against the hazards of the element. It's like, then what's it for? A plan to develop government-controlled hydroelectric power stations near Muscle Shoals in the Tennessee Valley was rejected by Presidents Harding and Coolidge as too socialistic. Such a project would have significantly improved the economy of the Tennessee Valley region, one of the nation's poorest areas. Muscle Shoals eventually became the nucleus of the Tennessee Valley Authority during the New Deal in the 30s. Many conservatives believe local communities and charities were responsible for helping citizens during tough times, not the government. This was largely Hoover's philosophy during the Depression, hence the reason it stayed that way so long. Conservatives were appointed to the Supreme Court. Harding appointed four Supreme Court justices in his less than three years as president. Judges were often reactionary and held back reforms for nearly two decades. Now, this there was some exception. Uh, Harding appointed appointed former President William Taft as Chief Justice, who was relatively liberal. 
The court reversed many of the labor gains and restricted government intervention in the economy. Atkins versus the Children's Hospital in 1923. The court invalidated a minimum wage law for women. Justification was females now had the vote and no longer could be protect, protected by special legislation. So you get the vote and you're no longer protected. That doesn't seem right. Conservatives were hostile to labor unions. Uh, conservatives were shocked by the 1919 Seattle general strike, the Boston po uh, police strike, the steel strikes, the United Mine Workers strikes, all these major strikes that had came out of the Gilded Age. Membership in labor unions dropped nearly 30% between 1920 and 1930. They're going to drop from approximately 12% of the civilian labor force to 8%. In 1922, the Railway Labor Board ordered a 12% wage cut, sparking a two-month railroad strike. Attorney General Dougherty is going to implement one of the most sweeping injunctions in U.S. history. The national debt was reduced by many Sorry, by making government smaller, the national debt had increased from $1.2 billion in 1914 to about $24 billion in 1921. This is going to be due to war-related spending. The Bureau of the Budget was created by Congress in 1921 to reduce the national debt. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon is going to reduce the national debt from about $26 billion to $16 billion. Calvin Coolidge, during his presidency, so... He's going, to, he's going to be president from 1923 to 1929. He's going, he's going to carry out a lot of Harding's conservative agenda. So we'll start with the farm problem. Now, the causes of this were the recovery of European farmers are going to bring less demand for U.S. farm products. The machines facilitated more food production, but the increased supply meant a decrease in food prices. And the gasoline-powered tractor is going to revolutionize U.S. farms in this period. A depression is going to hit the agricultural sector sector in 1920s as about 25% of the farms were sold because of debt or taxes. Foreclosures increased 500% between 1918 and 1923, and this is going to foreshadow the Great Depression later in the decade. The McNary-Hagan bill, which was proposed repeatedly between 1924 and 28, was a, a bipartisan congressional farm block from agricultural states aimed to help farmers. They sought to help agricultural prices uh, by keeping them high by authorizing the government to buy up surpluses and sell them abroad. The government losses would be made up by a special tax on the farmers. Coolidge is going to veto the bill twice. And the result of this, the farm prices remained low, meaning more foreclosures, more debt. All right. So the election of 1928... So you've got Herbert Hoover, who was the Republican nominee, and his, he had a platform of prosperity and prohibition. Alfred Smith was nominated by the Democrats, and he's going to be the first Irish-American Catholic that's going to be nominated by a major party. He'd been a Tammany Hall boss and was the wet son of Irish immigrants. Royal America and the South were deeply opposed to him. More than likely, a lot of that having to do with him being Catholic. All right, the campaign. So for this time, the radio was used significantly. And this is going to be the first time in a campaign that this is going to be used. Hoover warned of socialism and preached rugged individualism. The religious bigotry surfaced between uh, Smith's Catholicism and the Protestantism of uh, Hoover. So one of the things that they said was a vote for Al Smith is a vote for the Pope. 
Oddly enough, most people, you know, originated as Catholic. Anyway, uh, Hoover is going to defeat Smith in almost a landslide, landslide as far as the Electoral College, uh, 444 to 87. Uh, he was the first Republican in 52 years to carry several former Confederate states. He won five of those. It's going to be a huge Republican majority is going to return to the House of Representatives. Uh, there's only going to be about six states that will win Smith. Arkansas, oddly enough, was one of them. All right, Hoover's presidency. So let's start off with old Hoover, Herbert Hoover here a little bit. Now he's going to he's going to be in the president's seat from 1929 to 1933. Uh, he's going to organize food drives for the starving people of Belgium during World War One, or he had, sorry. Now, his leadership of the Food, uh, food Administration during World War I earned him the title of the Great Engineer and Wonder Boy. He was a su successful businessman who hated socialism or large-scale government intervention in the economy, although he was not in favor of the unbridled laissez-faire either. Now, as a Secretary of Commerce, he supported some progressive ideas, like he endorsed labor unions and he supported federal regulation of the new uh, radio broadcasting industry. And for a time, he considered government-owned radio, like Britain's BBC. On BBC. Get Doctor Who there. On the TV, not the radio. Well, actually, you, they have a radio one, too. Just don't drop that little... Move it on. Alright. He claimed in 1928 that poverty would be banished from the nation because everybody ought to be rich. And then the Great Crash of 1929 happened. All right, so we had a bull market. So the values of stocks are going to continue to increase during the 1920s. So the Dow Jones in 1924 was sitting at about 180. And then in September of 1929 was 381. Now on the margin buying of stocks, investors are going to purchase stocks from stockbrokers for as little as 5% down. When stock values rose, investors would pay back their debt. If no, payment, if no payment was made, stocks would be held as collateral. If prices of a stock decreased more than 10%, the broker would sell the stock for whatever price they could get. And the result of this was banks and businesses that had financed brokers' loans lost a lot of their money. Uh, banks, loans, banks loaned money to stockbrokers to facilitate on-margin buying. There was a lot of overspeculation as well. Investors gambled that prices would continue to rise, so artificial increases in stock and commodity values are going to fuel the speculation. Hoover unsuccessfully tried early on to curb speculation by pressuring the Federal Reserve Board to raise interest rates. On October 29, 1929, was the Great Crash, also called Black Tuesday. Nearly everyone wanted to sell and the stock market crashed. By mid-November, $25 billion in stock value had disappeared. Fortunes were wiped away almost overnight. The Dow Jones in 1932 was 41, down from 381 in September of 1929. So, you know, it didn't take long for it to go, you know, just drop over 300 points. Now, the traditional historical interpretations place the crash as the immediate cause of the Great Depression. However, there's no direct connection that's ever been proven. 
In fact, there are a few universally agreed upon causes for the depression itself. Uh, the recession actually began in August of 1929, two months before the crash. And this was largely due to the contradictory policies by the Federal Reserve Board that sought to curb overspeculation over on stocks. The U.S. did not sink into a major depression until December of 1930 after se several major banks collapsed. So the Bank of the uh, U.S. and there's going to be... Uh, several of the private banks that are going to collapse as well. Uh, a lot of this has to do with the run on banks. Once the stock market crashed, a lot of people feared that all their money would go, you know, just kind of go away. So everybody's making a run on pulling all of their money out of the banks. Uh, some economists put the cause of the international depression as late as 1931, where certain major European banks are going to collapse as well. After Black Tuesday, stock prices were still at 1926 levels, which were relatively strong. The stock market regained much of its losses by mid-1930. So there should be, you know, there's other factors that may have been important, which we'll get into. So, the long-term causes. There's going to be weak industries as a result of creative destruction. The cotton industry was affected by the rise of the synthetic materials. The railroad industry was affected by the automobile and the airplane and railroad passenger miles declined around almost 30 percent between 22 and 27. The coal industry declined in favor of the you know electrical, oil, and chemical industries. There's going to be low, low food prices and this is going to affect the farming industry. The demand for foodstuffs have dropped after World War One. The federal government refused to refuse price supports in the 1920s. There's also going to be overproduction of goods by manufacturers. Consumers began to spend less on goods, so you're going to have underconsumption. Ordinary workers and farmers had used their consumer credit and did not have enough money to keep buying products that were produced. The immigration laws of the 1920s reduced population growth that, in turn, reduced aggregate demand, and many warehouses were full of products that couldn't be sold. Income inequality. 5% of the population received 30% of the total income. So there was one estimate of income of the top 1% increased about 75%, while the bottom 93% increased only 6%, and it was partially due to Andrew Mellon's trickle-down policies. Urban industrial workers tended to earn more than farmers, and one half of the country lived below the poverty line. One half. And these are your potential customers. If they, do, if they don't have expendable money, if they don't have this expendable income, then all they're paying for are their basic necessities. They're not buying these additional products that fuel the economy. All right. There was also an unstable banking system. There was a lot of mismanagement in real estate, and there was this overspeculation in the stock market that's going to weaken the banking system. 1% of the banks controlled almost 50% of the bank reserves. There's going to be those runs on the bank that I was talking about earlier that are going to cause a lot of these banks to close after the crash. We also had weak international, there was also a weak international economy. The U.S. protectionist trade policies are going to hurt our foreign trade. So you had that uh, 4D McCumber tariff, the Holly Smoot tariff, and th that Holly Smoot tariff is going to create the highest tariff in U.S. history. So there's going to be 23 different nations that are going to retaliate by imposing tariffs on U.S. exports. So we can't export a lot of our goods. And remember, we have this surplus, but we can't get rid of it because of these high tariffs. 
The U.S. economy in 1929 was less affected by the weak international economy due to foreign trade representing a small percentage of the overall U.S. economy, though. But there's going to be a lot of loan defaults from foreign countries, and this is going to reduce the demand ultimately, and this is going to worsen the crisis in the U.S. Okay, so by 1932, over 5,700 banks had failed, so that's 22%. 4,000 banks are going to collapse between December of 32 and the new president's inauguration of March in 33. Thousands of businesses are going to fail. 20,000 in 1929, 30,000 in 1932. Business investment between 29 and 32 is going to decrease by almost 95%. Unemployment is going to reach a ridiculous number, 25% by 1932. That's 13 million people, and this is, this is excluding farmers. It's going to get as high as 33% if you include farmers. In certain areas like Chicago, you're looking at 50%. Low-skill workers were most effective. Professionals and middle class suffered a little bit less. So blacks and immigrant workers were especially hard hit because they were considered low-skilled. Unemployment had been as low as 3.2 back in 29. So between 29, we're at like 3.2, we get to, we get to 32 so just a couple, you know, just a couple years later, we're at 25% or like I said, 33 if you add the farmers in. The auto industry only functioned at about 20% of capacity in 1932 and the steel industry only at 12% of capacity. Total wages are going to drop from 12 billion to 7 billion from 29 to 32. And that's about a 41% drop. This is going to be partially due to deflation and that's a decrease in the overall price level of the economy. And this is also going to be due to an increase in child labor. By 1932, 25% of all of our farmers had lost their farms. You know, and some of these had been family farms had been in the gener you know, been in the family for generations. A major cause of this is going to be a large drop in food prices that are caused by that overproduction and the less demand from Europe because of tariffs. All right, the human cost of this. Now, a lot of people are going to experience a loss of self-worth. A lot of families are going to break up. The marriage rate and the birth rate are both going to decline. Families are going to double up in houses and apartments to save money. Three million people became hobos and lived in makeshift shacks known as Hoovervilles because they're blaming Herbert, Herbert Hoover. Uh, malnutrition is going to be rampant in certain areas, but death by starvation was actually pretty uncommon. But uh, this is still going to cause more people to be susceptible to fatal diseases. So they're not dying. They're not dying of malnutrition. They're dying of the diseases they get from the malnutrition. Okay, the depression is going to be the longest and most devastating in U.S. history. We had depressions before, but none of them had ever gotten this extreme. The U.S. was hit the hardest among industrialized uh, nations. The gross national product fell from about 104 billion in 29 to 56 billion in 33. The international reparations and war debt structure had collapsed and the US exports had dropped further hurting our economy. And not until the US began preparing for World War II in 39 did the depression end. And by then it had lasted for 10 years. Now Hoover's response. Uh he did not respond very quickly at all. He believed perhaps correctly 
that outside forces in Europe were responsible for the Great Depression. The economic consequences of World War I, especially the, you know, the Versailles Treaty and the German reparations, are going to hurt the international economy. Post-war military alliances and the doubling of pre-war armament did not increase the demand for consumer goods. And you believe that inf uh, inflationary public works programs to alleviate unemployment may have done more harm than good. The unbalanced budgets and the increasing debt are going to cripple the national economies. Hoover then took too long to initiate the domestic measures to help the economy, believing instead the international system had to be repaired first. Okay, let's look at farming. So pre-crash, pre the Agricultural Market Act is going to be passed by Congress in 1929. Marketing Act, sorry. Uh, it's going to be designed to help farmers help themselves, largely, largely through producers' cooperatives. It indicated uh, Hoover's progressive tendencies. Coolidge had vetoed these policies prior. Uh, the Federal Farm Board was a, as a, excuse me. The Federal Farm Board was established in 1930, and this had a revolving fund of about five million or five hundred million dollars. It's going to lend these funds to buy, sell, and store U.S. agricultural supplies. And the goal of this was to raise these sagging prices by buying up surpluses and selling them abroad. The policy failed as the production of food increased further. So that was a a no go. All right, we're going to have several attempts at economic recovery. First off, volunteerism. Now, Hoover is going to believe voluntary cooperation, like in World War I, would enable the country to overcome the Depression. He's going to urge businesses to avoid layoffs of workers and wage cuts. Now, eventually, the worsening economy is going to force businesses to cut workers and wages anyway. He also secured no-strike pledges from labor leaders, and he urged all citizens to contribute to charities to ease the suffering. Hoover himself is going to donate generously. But in reality, these, this private charity was not adequate to meet the country's needs during the unprecedented economic calamity. The Hawley Smoot Tariff of 1930. This is going to be the highest peacetime tariff in our history. The average duty increased from 38.5% to nearly 60%. This is going to exacerbate the existing international economic depression. Foreign countries interpreted the tariff as an economic declaration of war as the volume of trade shrunk further. International financial chaos resulted in the U.S. becoming even more isolated. And then there were public works. So in 1930, Congress is going to uh, appropriate $750 million for public buildings, river and harbor improvements, and highway construction to stimulate employment. Hoover Dam construction began in 1931 is completed in 1936. Construction of the dam employed thousands and created a huge man-made lake for irrigation, flood control, and electric power. By 1932, the efforts of the President and Congress had yielded little in economic growth. There's also a moratorium on international debt in 1931. Hoover courageously pushed for a one-year freeze on international debt payments to help European countries recover, especially Germany. But the international economy was too heavily damaged for this to actually make any difference. The Reconstruction Finance Corporation, or the RFC, in 1932, it had an appropriation of $500 million and authority to borrow $1.5 billion for loans to railroads, banks, and other financial institutions. Later, Hoover is going to approve legislation authorizing the RFC to lend $300 million to states for relief and to make loans to states and cities for self-liquidating public works. This is going to become a mini-blueprint for the New Deal in the 1930s during FDR's presidency. 
This is also going to, this is going to prevent the failure of basic firms on which many of the other elements of the eco, uh, economy depended, but this is going to be very criticized by some as relief for the rich. The Norse La Guardia Anti-Injunction Act. This is going to be 1932, and it's going to outlaw those yellow dog or anti-union contracts, and it's going to forbid the federal courts from issuing injunctions to restrain the strikes, the boycotts, and peaceful picketing. The Revenue Act of 1932 will further reduce demand through taxation on personal income and mandating a balanced budget. 1932, we have the Bonus Army. So, 14,000 unemployed veterans are going to march on Washington in the summer of 1932 to lobby Congress for early payment of that World War I bonus that was payable in 1945. At Hoover's insistence, the Senate did not pass the bill bonus, and about half of the Bonus Army accepted congressional transportation back home. The remaining 5,000 marchers lived in shanties along the Anacostia River and continued to lobby for their cause. Hoover called in the Army to remove the Bonus Army after two veterans were killed in a clash with the police. Veterans were driven from Washington, D.C., and their camps were burned. So you have all these veterans that are homeless and they're living in these shanties from World War One. You know, the Great War. And Hoover is going to scoot them along and then burn their camps with other army. Oh, that already. Yeah. So, obviously, people are going to have this, you know, poor outlook on Hoover. He's going to appear heartless to this, you know, already angry group of Americans. This is going to contribute to his defeat in the November election. Now, now his evaluation. Despite not doing enough, Hoover is going to advocate more direct government involvement than any of the previous presidents in the nation's history, and he's going to probably prevent a more serious collapse than actually did occur. These policies are going to pave the way for the New Deal under, uh, under FDR. But his conservative underpinnings are going to prevent him from going far enough in addressing the worst depression in our history. His focus on maintaining a balanced budget through tax receipts from the Revenue Act of 1932 is going to you know, further decrease demand. By refusing to get off the gold standard, the money supply in the U.S. is going to remain stagnant. Now, in contrast, FDR took the nation off the gold standard early in his presidency, and the increased money supply helped stimulate the economy somewhat. All right. Refusal of large-scale relief is also going to extend the misery along the masses. Hoover is going to veto the use of federal funds for relief for the needy. He feared that government handouts were socialistic and would destroy the nation's work ethic. He believed instead in rugged individualism, but if there are no jobs, there are no jobs, buddy. Hoover eventually is going to co uh, compromise by authorizing that RFC to lend millions to states for relief, but this proved too little too late. Now, your terms to know for this one is much smaller, and I will choose one of your essays and have that loaded for you.